welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Hello and welcome to the Palia podcast. Today we're talking about the place of emotion in opinion. We are thrilled to have Professor Karin Val Jorgensen, who teaches in the School of Journalism at Cardiff University, where she's also the Director of Research Development. Karin's focus is the relationship between citizenship, media and emotion, and how changes in technology play across all those fields. Thank you for joining us, Karin. Thank you very much for having me. We're thrilled to be talking to you, especially at this time. Um, we live in an age of increasing radicalization and polarization. Most of us, Pyre included, believe in some abstract return to reason, to civilized debate as the foundation stone for democracy and participatory politics. We have this idea of the functioning public sphere as a place, as a, as a place where calm debate and logic can inform the decisions we take about the polities and states we want to build. But I think, Karen, you'd say that's possibly wrong, that we need to put emotion at the heart of our understanding of what the public sphere is. Of course, that's true. So we want to ask your help in understanding how we can be a little bit less afraid of emotion when we talk about ourselves and our opinions and our politics. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think that historically speaking, we have tended to view emotion as sort of the polar opposite um, of rationality. So that historically, at least in Western liberal democracies, we've basically tended to value rationality as a cornerstone of what it means to be a responsible citizen. And I think that this is in part to sort of tell a very simplified story that because the Enlightenment, which gave birth to liberal democracies, was premised on the idea that rational and informed citizens can govern better than absolute and authoritarian rulers. And so we've tended to see emotionality as a kind of threat to rationality, as a sort of pollutant in public life. But I think that recently researchers across social sciences and humanities have come to recognize that the, the sort of reality of political life is a lot more complicated than that. And that in particular, we can be both rational and emotional at the same time. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a growing recognition that people often participate in politics and get engaged politically uh, precisely because they're emotionally engaged, because they feel passionate about something. And that could be anything ranging from racial injustice to climate change to local proposals for property development. But either way, what we've actually seen is that emotion is essential to political life and that instead of shying away from it or pretending that it doesn't exist, we actually have to look carefully at what emotions circulate in the public sphere and what work these emotions actually do. So we need to take the starting point that emotions are essential to politics, whether we like them or not, 
and that we ignore them at our, at our peril. That's fascinating. And, and yet the, the words you use, people feel passionately about issues. They don't think passionately about issues. That makes lots of sense. Um, can we start at the beginning? And, um, and can I ask you to help us understand what, em, how you understand emotion? So how do you describe emotions? What are they? I, for me, in, in my research, because I'm a media and journalism scholar, I talk about mediated emotion as a distinctive concept. So uh, what I mean when I talk about it in this way is that when emotions are expressed in the media, something fundamentally different is going on from when we feel emotions circulating in our in individual bodies. Um, now, for me, emotions in the media are distinctive because at the most basic level, journalists have decided to include them in their stories. That is to say that emotions, as they appear in the media, serve a kind of narrative function. And that narrative function is also potentially political and ideological because it makes a huge difference whether a news story reports that people are exhilarated or angry about changes in the lockdown rules, for example. Um, and also, I think it's important to note that oftentimes when we see emotions represented in the media, these emotions are frequently collective. So they're not just the emotions of one person, but they're emotions shared by groups of people. So when we talk about the Black Lives Matter protests being fueled by anger, that is an anger which is not just individual and based on individual grievances, but also shared and therefore potentially more consequential for political life. So just to be clear, do you think there's a difference between the emotion of an individual and the emotion of a group or of a collective? Well, I think that there is a very significant difference there because when we feel an emotion individually, that might be something that we can attribute to our specific circumstances. But when we recognize that other people feel the same way about the same thing and we then join together, then that can become the basis for political action. So, for example, we've seen this as a big theme in the um, second wave feminist movement, um, which had the slogan of the personal is political, precisely because um, in, in the case of that movement, it was a matter of individual women feeling angry about having to do all the housework and the childcare, and then getting together with other women and realizing that it wasn't just about their own personal experience, but that this was a shared experience that had to do with uh, the fundamental um, kind of structural condition of patriarchy. And so therefore, when individual emotions are shared, when they are recognized as collective, they then become potentially political. And the media play a vital role in terms of actually facilitating the expression of collective emotions and thereby um, creating the grounds for social change. So the individual experiences emotion in a particular way. The crowd experiences emotion in a slightly different way. 
and media serves a vital function in translating that individual experience into a collective which can translate into political action of itself. But do you think crowds therefore feel differently from individuals? Or is can you perfectly map? Could you essentially psychoanalyze a crowd in the way that you can psychoanalyze an individual? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there's a lot of work on the kind of psychology of crowds. And certainly I think that um, historically speaking, we've had this kind of fear of crowds uh, precisely because of these dynamics of crowd psychology that when individuals uh, come together in a crowd, then they frequently become more angry, more aggressive and that therefore crowds are viewed as potentially dangerous because of their capacity to cause aggression and violence. So um, I think that there has been a fear of people acting collectively precisely because of this notion of the fear of the crowd. So the crowd is a kind of very prominent figure in terms of talking about collective emotion and the potential dangers of collective emotion. Understood. Um, there is a there is quite a lot of work on the fact that crowds tend to accelerate negative emotions rather than positive ones. It's easier to whip a crowd up in anger than it is to whip a crowd up, perhaps in love. Although I'm sure there are pop concerts which would disagree. But is that right politically? Well, I, I think that's right. I think that um, that again is is precisely why crowds um, are feared because of the fact that they tend to amplify particularly negative emotion. And, and again, we see some similar dynamics going on in social media contexts where it's easier to get lots of people angry on Twitter than it is to get lots of people to be happy on Twitter. So there's something, um, I think about anger in particular, uh, which makes it a powerful mobilizing emotion and makes it, um, an emotion that can be amplified in a social context, including that of crowds and also social media. So moving from this idea of a, a, a psychology of crowds or of groups, I want to go to a, another idea of yours, which is um, the idea of emotional regimes, sort of epochs of psychological experience. Can you walk me through that idea, please? <laughs> sure. So. Uh, so emotional regimes are, are a concept that was, or is a concept, I'm just going to start that again. Uh, emotional regimes, um, it is an idea that was developed by the historian William Reddy. And he did this sort of magisterial study of how we talked our, about our emotions throughout history. And what he argued in his work is that each particular era is linked to specific ways of talking about emotions, even down to the specific emotion words that seem to prevail in a particular era. And that these emotional regimes are linked to political regimes. So in other words, that all political regimes are underpinned by dominant emotions. And that could be anything from hope uh, to anger. Now, I, I found the concept particularly helpful as a media scholar, because I see the media as one key site for enacting the dominant emotional regime. So it's a site where we work out our emotions and we talk about them, but at the same time, the media can also be seen to both reinforce and challenge particular emotional regimes. So can you give us a, 
sort of a brief history, even if it's super sketchy, of the last hundred years of emotional regimes? Is that? Well, um, so I'm not really a historian, uh, but I have done uh, research on media coverage of politics over the last 30 years or so. So, um, Great, so, fantastic, yes. <laughs> so uh, that, that's not nearly, uh, nearly as expensive as 100 years. But what, what we can see, for example, in US politics is that political regimes there have long been dominated by positive emotions. So in the 1990s and early 2000s, for example, um, we saw the dominance of hope um, as a key kind of emotional word defining emotional regimes. So for example, Bill Clinton actually came from the town of Hope, Arkansas. Um, and so he described himself quite accurately as the man from hope and ideas around hope uh, were were very prominent in terms of how he presented himself. And likewise, Barack Obama continued on that theme with his iconic hope poster. But by contrast, if we then look at Donald Trump, for me, he represents a massive shift in the emotional regime. Because although he has this uh, campaign slogan, of making America great again, which is positive and does in a sense embody uh, hope for the future. At the same time, that slogan has been accompanied uh, by what tend to be quite angry uh, rants oftentimes about uh, both the present and the future. So for me, the emergence of Donald Trump and the political uh, scene represents a kind of shift in the emotional regime towards one of what are called angry populism. Um, and, and I think I should hasten to add that I think that Donald Trump is not the only angry populist in the world. There are other angry populists. There is, um, I suppose, colonial theorist Pankaj Mishra has, has uh, talked about it, the rise of a global age of anger where anger has become a very central emotion in terms of talking about politics. I want to come back to that a little bit later in the podcast, um, but stay at this slightly more abstract level for now. Um, I, the, I'm, I'm also interested in not just the shift in emotional regimes, which you've just so beautifully drawn us through from the 90s to today, but also super interested in a comment that you made right at the beginning here about our fear of emotion and actually a change in the way that we place emotion um, in our understanding of society. You have this lovely phrase in your book. You cite Philip Reef, who characterizes liberal democracy as irrational passion for dispassionate rationality, which is a lovely thing to say, but broadly that suggests that our a previous epoch um, was obsessed with this idea of reason and logic and the public sphere as being devoid of emotion. We've moved away from that into an age where emotion is much more prevalent, much more included in our sense of self. Can you walk me through that shift as well, away from the purely the, the dry into the sort of the, the wet of emotion, this age of emotion that we live in now? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not completely convinced that the way in which uh, 
or the, the extent to which we feel emotional has shifted substantially over time. I think that what has happened instead is that emotion figures much more prominently in public discourse. So I think that we still have a situation where rationality is very much valued and for very, very good reasons. Um, but at the same time, over a longer historical period, we've seen the growth um, of um, much more public discussion around emotions. And I would say that, you know, if, if you look at, at scholarship on this work, for instance, in media studies suggests that um, when we saw the rise of television talk shows in the 1980s, things like the Oprah Winfrey show, for example, in the, in the US, uh, and we have equivalents uh, in, the, in the UK, we saw the rise of platforms where for the first time, perhaps, it was acceptable to talk about your emotions in public. Um, and so people have always had all these emotions, uh, but they have not surfaced in the public sphere in the same way that perhaps they increasingly do today. Um, so I think that some of that then has to do with a shift in terms of what kinds of media contents out there, what kinds of debates we are having uh, in public. Um, but um, I think that some of it also has to do with a broader shift where we're recognizing that actually emotion is important and things like things like the rise of the concept of emotional intelligence, I think has been significant. So there's been this recognition probably starting sometime in the 1990s that actually being in touch with your own emotions and those of other people is perhaps just as essential as being super intelligent um, and good at maths, for example. So that there's a growing um, sense that there's a value to understanding um, emotions um, as well. So I think that we're looking, we're not looking at a shift in terms of necessarily how people feel in an essential sense, but rather a change in terms of how we talk about those feelings in public. Nothing makes that point so strongly as the example you've just given of uh, the acknowledgement of the, that there should be such a thing as emotional intelligence. It, it gives an active value. It's something that could almost be measured like IQ, you have EQ. Um, you've also talked about, elsewhere, you've talked about sort of confessional culture um, and also what this rise in emotionality, this acceptance that emotion is a real thing, a, possibly a good thing or at least not a bad thing, um, has had on our politics and our media. It's You've written that it's sort of changed our politicians as well as the ways in which we write about them, no? Yeah, no, so that, that's absolutely right. So uh, I think that it, it used to be the case that politicians were supposed to be, you know, completely rational and stone cold, and that the more rational they seemed, uh, the more acceptable they would be to voters. But then I think that we've seen um, a long um, or at, at more or less the same time as we've seen these shifts in terms of the rise of um, media genres for actually talking about your emotions. At the same time, we've seen the 
growth in the expectation that politicians need to show their emotions as well, that politicians need to show voters that they too are human beings. So again, that's probably something uh, that started in the United States um, where, um, for example, to be a successful politician, you now have to show that you can cry um, and that you can kind of manage your emotions. Um, equally, we've seen it in the UK where um, someone like Gordon Brown um, was was sort of seen as not really being a very emotional person. And then he gave this very, um, uh, a really quite personal interview with Piers Morgan um, in which he showed his ability to actually cry on, on TV um, talking about uh, the very tragic death of his child. So, so I think that we've seen an increased recognition that politicians in order to appeal to voters also have to show that they are human beings and that being a human being entails having emotions and being able to show these emotions. With all sorts of consequences in a very particular direction, which I want to ask you about now, you have described anger as the essential political emotion and a key ideological resource. Um, and elsewhere, you've written about how certain emotions can be acknowledged in media and in politics, love, anger, grief, etc., while others cannot discussed envy, paranoia. Can you, can you unpack the landscape, therefore, of, of which emotions play in media and politics, which don't, and then get us to this, to this key focus of yours, which is the politics of anger? Well, I think that positive emotions are extremely important in politics because it's extremely important to show voters that you are able to instill in them hope for the future, um, that you are capable of love, that you feel passionate and positive about the country or the city that you represent. So positive emotions are historically essential um, in political life. Um, and at the same time, um, it's historically tended to be unacceptable, certainly for politicians, to show that they are angry um, or frustrated because that um, kind of indicates that they're not really in control of the, their emotions, that they're not able to manage their emotions. So historically, I think that, um, that positive emotions have been extremely important for politicians, but at the same time, um, negative emotions have to be very carefully managed. So it's okay if you're a politician to be sad if something sad happens, because that would be a normal human reaction. But if you appear to be unhinged, whether that's because you're angry or frustrated, um, then that is not acceptable because it suggests that you would not have the cool-headedness to lead the country or um, or the city or whatever uh, whatever it is that you represent. That, so that's the that that that's that sort of explains which emotions um, are acceptable both in, in in politics and media. But um, why 
back to this key piece around anger, you describe it as the essential political emotion, perhaps particularly today, but why is anger so powerful? And should we think of anger as a purely a negative? Well, um, I've actually spent a lot of time studying anger um, and how anger is represented, particularly in the media. And that's because, um, like you said, I see it as an essential political emotion and both for better and for worse. So it's a very complex emotion as well. And it's complex um, because, first of all, as, as I mentioned earlier, anger has often been maligned uh, both by scholars and in popular culture because it's seen as a kind of dangerous emotion. So one that can lead to aggression and violence and lots of bad things. But then at the same time, it's also now widely recognized as a mobilizing emotion and often actually a very appropriate emotion given the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So in other words, it's an important resource for actually mobilizing social movements to action. Um, so that, that's to say, just to give an example, that Black Lives Matter started not because people felt sad or depressed, but because they felt angry. So anger tends to be an emotion that's associated with activity and engagement. And indeed, um, in the context of media coverage, my research has shown me that when coverage portrays people as angry for a good reason, whether that's about something Donald Trump has done or about something like tuition fee increases, when people appear to be angry for a good reason, then that anger is newsworthy. So that it's a it's a, it's a it's a trigger for media. So righteous anger is a trope that the media understands and wishes to and wishes to highlight. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, that's right. So um, I think that when we see anger represented in media, it's often what we might call kind of righteous anger or an anger that is justified because of particular particular political grievances. And these tend to be grievances that are in some sense justified or legitimate. Um, so, um, so for that reason, then anger in those contexts is entirely rational. Um, it's rational because it's based on a felt injustice that needs to be addressed and that can be addressed usually through forms of collective action. Is injustice the key word here? And is injustice the prism through which media looks at social anger? Um, well, I think that's right. So I think that when um, Socrates originally defined anger, um, he defined it as um, a response to a grievance or an injustice felt by yourself or by a friend. So um, even if we go back uh, very far into the depths of history, we see that anger has been tied to feelings of injustice and to claims, conversely, for justice. And so for that reason, I think that it's, it's right to say that anger is essentially a political emotion precisely because of this link to issues of justice. Uh, that's... In the context that we currently find ourselves, um, the very heart of everything. Can I ask you, therefore, in the language of emotion, to 
walk us through how you read the Black Lives Matter protests, which have been picked up um, positively by almost all mainstream media, both in the UK and US. But what's going on there? How would you psychoanalyze the emotions <laughs> of Black Lives Matter, the, the, the movement? Well, well, for me, uh, these protests obviously don't come out of nowhere, but but they're rather the culmination of a set of very long-standing and clearly justified grievances. So, like many other uh, protests, they're driven by anger, and in this case, like in many others, this anger could be viewed as entirely rational. So, there's no opposition there between emotion and rationality. It's an entirely rational anger because although there's been a long-standing awareness of racial inequality, discrimination, and violence, these issues have never really been addressed adequately. Um, now, at the same time, I think that uh, the response to the protest, as you, as you mentioned, also, in a sense, show the power of empathy, of being able to feel with others. And what, what I mean by that is, for example, that in the US, we've seen the protests mobilizing white suburbanites and Republicans who may not have experienced um, racial injustice firsthand, but what they have seen is that very dramatic and traumatic iconic footage of the killing of George Floyd. And as a result of that, they have seen um, very concretely in very embodied terms what it's like to experience injustice. So I think that for me, um, some of the key emotions that animate um, the Black Lives Matter protests are on the one hand, negative but politically powerful emotion of anger, but then also empathy of a kind that we haven't really previously seen in this particular context. That's, that's very beautiful. Um, not, to, not to recast the... Um, the monstrosities that it brought that, that brought it about um i i have personally looked at this the black lives matter movement in a sense through the metaphor of abuse and trauma um long historical abuse deeply embedded culturally as trauma which erupts in this sort of righteous rage but as i realize as i as i talk it through i wonder whether that's that is, even is a metaphor. Is it actually just precisely that? Is it reality? Is that parallel between the lived personal experience and the lived collective experience? Something that we were talking about earlier, but can they be mapped on, on each other that clearly? Well, I think that we can view it as a response to a collective trauma um, that is a result of the compounded experience of of racism over a very long period of time so i think that um trauma is both you know a metaphor and an accurate experience um, of what has actually been animating uh, these protests and i think if anything the whole language around trauma is becoming increasingly prominent in terms of explaining our experiences so it's the kind of phrase that, that we've seen circulating increasingly. And, and I think it's also something that's going to be used as a way of understanding how people have responded, for example, to the coronavirus pandemic, that this is both an individual trauma and a collective trauma. 
So I think that there are possibly very few experiences that uh, would fit under this label of being a collective trauma, but I think that that racism is certainly one of them. So moving from um, this righteous anger at centuries of, of oppression and racism, um, I, I want to go back to a, a comment that you made earlier. You quoted Pankaj Mishra um, describing our present time as being the age of anger. Um, can you walk, walk us through that? Well, um, so what? Um, okay, let me just uh, let me just try and collect my thoughts on this one. So, what what um, I have um, looked at in my research is a role of anger in shaping our current emotional regime. And what I've argued is that, in particular, Donald Trump uh, embodies what what I refer to as angry populism, something that I see as representative, perhaps, of a broader age of anger or an age in which anger is a dominant uh, political regime. But I'm talking in my work about angry populism in particular because I'm interested in the way that Donald Trump engages in political discourse. And, and what I mean when I talk about angry populism is that I'm talking about a rhetoric which seeks broad appeal through the deliberate expression of anger. And actually, so what I found in my research, uh, which looked at the coverage of Trump um, and anger, so the role of anger in, in representations of Trump in the period between his election and inauguration, comparing that to the same period during Obama's first term. And what I found was that anger was far more prominent in coverage of Trump. And in many cases, what was interesting was that the anger was attributed to Trump himself. So Trump was described in this coverage as being an angry person. And he was described as being angry about nothing in particular. So that is to say, Trump in media coverage tends to be described as an essentially angry man. And through his anger, he's channeling the anger of the people who voted for him. So um, according to political scientists, Trump voters um, appear to be frequently motivated by both cultural and economic anger, depending on who you ask. Um, and that is an anger that stems from the idea of being left behind in a kind of globalized and multicultural uh, society. Uh, but Trump is a kind of ventriloquist of this public anger, he gives voice to the anger of people who have long felt a significant lack of representation in politics. And in fact, what I would also say is that actually, and I think I think I mentioned this before as well when we talked about appropriate emotions for a politician to express, that anger is actually a very unusual emotion for a politician to channel. It's very, very risky for a politician to appear to be angry precisely because it risks them appearing as being unhinged or not in con control or command of their emotions. So that historically, like I mentioned, we have seen far more emphasis on positive emotions. But 
What's distinctive about Trump and, and perhaps the reason why he's gotten away with it is that he stepped in with his anger at the right time and in the right place. Um, so um, we have at the same time as we've seen the rise of Trump, also seen the rise of right-wing populists who often use very angry language in many countries around the world. And, and I could mention many examples, but we've got very prominently Bolsonaro in Brazil and Viktor Orban in Hungary, for, for example. Uh, there are many other cases where politicians of a populist bent, bent will tend to use anger um, as a way of expressing the grievances uh, of the people who vote for them. But what's so fascinating here, as you as you frame it, is that it's not particularly directed. It's it's, and it, nor even is it scattergun. It's sort of a blanket anger. It's just rage. Um, you f you flag one cause for that, which is a sense of being left behind, which is a sort of an aggregate feeling, difficult to difficult to put a finger on. Um, you've also you've also elsewhere described. Um, the that that anger emerging from people who used to be something and feel they are no longer something it's a, it's a sense of having been not just not catching up with where the world is going but losing out on where they had been are those the two dominant drivers of the anger that you that you see expressed in that beautiful phrase of yours this by the great ventriloquist <laughs> trump well i i think that that so when I, when I say that um, the motivation to vote for Trump is based on cultural and economic anger here, I'm not drawing so much on my own work, but drawing on the work of political scientists who have done surveys of Trump voters. So, um, so I can um, sort of only speculate about, um, about the motivations of voters in that sense. Um, but um, going on here is that because it's been historically unacceptable to express anger in public, but because many voters, many citizens have felt angry privately, then that becomes an extremely powerful emotion to harness by politicians um, who then eventually are able to translate that into electoral gains. So I think that Trump and other angry populists have taken advantage of the fact that lots of people are feeling angry for a variety of different emotion, uh, for a variety of different reasons, um, but they haven't really had a channel for expressing that emotion and acting on it. Parallel question. Um, we have an age of anger. You've talked about angry populism, a completely new form of political leader that simply articulates a rage, a sort of inchoate rage. In the greatest example of this, Donald Trump, you also have somebody who, who is Teflon to the extent that, I mean, that, that no other politician has ever been so capable of such mistruths, such blatant lies um, as... Uh, as Donald Trump has been able to get away with. Is there a link between um, that channeling of anger and the degradation of political discourse in this particular, in this instance? Well, I think that one of the things that um, 
Donald Trump has benefited from is the fragmentation of the public sphere and the growth of social media, which um, has allowed him to bypass the scrutiny of conventional media and instead just uh, tweeting nonstop um, in often very misleading and often very angry ways. And I think that um, Trump has then sought to further undermine the role of traditional media by appropriating the term of fake news and calling everything that he doesn't like fake news. Um, and so, in other words, he's kind of developed a new authoritarian tactic of seeking to undermine traditional media, which have tended to provide the most robust scrutiny available of elected politicians. So he's tended to undermine traditional media and also bypass traditional media by drawing on social media platforms like Twitter and also uh, uh, Facebook, for example. And so what that enables him to do is to get the message uh, straight to his voters as opposed to having to go through traditional media that might be more likely to be critical of him and his claims. Um, and that in turn has meant that um, there's less of an opportunity for the information that he provides and the claims that he makes to be carefully checked. Um, and I think that that is actually um, quite a dangerous uh, juncture as a result of his um, quite persistent attempts at actually undermining um, traditional media because it means that this traditional fourth estate role of, of the media of holding the powerful to account is then um, put into question or undermined. So yesterday, um, we, we, we saw President Rodrigo Duterte, President, authoritarian president of the Philippines, um, uh, have the, the founders of Rappler, a big Filipino news organization there, um, uh, attacked in court. That is an old fashioned, that's sort of a modernist approach to authoritarianism. And what we have over here with Trump is a sort of postmodern form of authoritarianism whereby he doesn't, he's not closing the New York Times or taking them to court, he's just bypassing them and undermining the very foundations upon which they, um, they seek to operate. That, that's, the, that's the line here, is that right? Yeah, so that's right. So, so I think that probably if he was able to, he would close down all the traditional news media that tend to scrutinize him or be critical of him. Now, that's not as straightforward to do in the United States. But what he has done is to engage in unprecedented attacks on free media and unprecedented attempts at actually barring traditional media from scrutinizing his actions. Um, and he's done this in a wide variety of different ways over a significant period of time. So I think that he has used all the tools available to him, including tools that would not be acceptable um, uh, in, a, in a kind of um, successfully functioning democratic society, such as uh, throwing out uh, correspondence uh, 
attacking journalists on social media, encouraging violence against uh, journalists, and so on. So there's a whole range of tactics that he has deployed, which he has been able to do, but which are not, I would say, conventionally considered acceptable in a democratic society. Understood. I'm also mindful of the fact that um, John Bolton's book about Trump's presidency is currently in the courts as Trump seeks to block its publication, which is pretty um, modernist, not postmodern. Um, one, one, one point about um, about the Trump's capacity for untruths and um, and many other po politicians around the world, um, their capacity for untruths. Many of us were reminded of the three hundred fifty million pounds on the back of a bus uh, during the Brexit campaign in in, in the UK. Um, is this because, actually, to your point, your very, very first points, that we were shifting away from an obsession with reason towards one where we were able to better include emotion in our understanding of politics? Here, on some level, for a public listening, the emotion is more important than the reason. The feeling of anger is more important than the detail of whether X or Y is actually true. Um, well, I, I think that I think that that is accurate uh, to some extent. Um, I also think that we have seen the growth in politicians and campaigns making quite crazy claims um, with the expectation that these kinds of claims would circulate and be celebrated um, on social media before they could properly be fact-checked by traditional media. And so I think that a part of what is going on here is in a sense that in part because of the rise of social media, we are living in what scholars have called a post-truth era, where people will make all sorts of claims that are not really substantiated with evidence, and that um, these claims are very difficult to fact check in real time. And therefore, lots of people will hear about um, these claims being made, and it's much more difficult to actually um, um, get the correction out there than it is to get a spectacular claim of 350 million pounds uh, a week um, yeah. out there in, in the first place. So lots has been said about the difficulties of fact-checking and, and misinformation generally in today's age. But um, you have written fascinatingly about the platforms, I mean, Facebook and YouTube and the rest, their impact, not on the way we understand truth, but actually on the way we emotionalize politics. They have had an impact on the way that we feel the platforms themselves. Walk me through, for example, um, how Facebook has made emotion central to, um, to the entire news media industry. Well, one of the things that um, I've been interested in is what I call the emotional architecture of social media. So um, what I'm suggesting by using that phrase is that, you know, any kind of public space has an emotional architecture. It's designed to make you feel in a certain way, whether that's an emotional or whether that's a local park that's supposed to uh, make you feel kind of relaxed or a grand boulevard that's supposed to look intimidating or impressive. Um, all public spaces have emotional architectures um, and these emotional architectures tend to be quite 
deliberately designed. Now, in the case of Facebook in particular, that is a public uh, space that exists in virtual settings, but Facebook has a very deliberate emotional architecture. And that architecture um, is premised on the need to make people feel positive um, about what they're doing on the platform. Um, because if you feel positive, you're more likely to spend loads of time on Facebook and therefore you're more, more likely to earn money uh, for Facebook. And so what Facebook has tried to do is to encourage positive uh, emotional reactions in part through the emoji reactions buttons that have been very carefully designed um, and also in part uh, due to the way their personalization algorithms tend to uh, operate, which um, tend to prominently display um, posts which have gotten a lot of reactions um, and a lot of positive reactions. Um, and so therefore you're more likely to see positive news on Facebook and it's more likely to make you feel in a good mood and therefore more likely to click on the links for the advertisers um, for um, uh, for products that are that are using Facebook as a platform. You've also said that Twitter sort of does the opposite. <laughs> Twitter tw does does Twitter um, prejudice negative emotions, outrage? Yeah. So Twitter is an interesting example because Twitter is actually um, in some ways um, steered clear of having this really kind of overdetermined uh, emotional architecture that you see on Facebook. So in a way, um, Twitter has for some time been the wild west of social media in terms of uh, the fact that um, you can, you can uh, respond uh, negatively and that doesn't really have any consequences unless you're abusive or, um, or otherwise violating their rules. But it actually has to be quite extreme to be taken off Twitter. Um, and so um, what it also means is that there tends to be a tendency for people to express negative emotion, um, particularly on Twitter. What also seems to be a pattern on Twitter is that negative emotional content is shared uh, more widely than positive emotional content. Um, and that in turn kind of amplifies that negative emotion that, that often prevails on Twitter. Now that, that's not to say that that is the only emotion that you see on Twitter, um, but I think that there's a much wider spectrum of emotional expression that's kind of encouraged by the more open emotional architecture of Twitter as a platform. The fundamental point remains that the platform, the social platforms themselves have done a tremendous job at injecting emotion into our understanding of what the public sphere is more generally. Um, can I can I wrap up with a last question for you um, around our emotional regime and the future one? So as you look, you describe today as the age of anger, you see the pop, angry populism around us. How do we get out of this? How does how does this play out? Well, I think that um, we we have to look for a future in which um, 
there's a space for more positive emotion. And um, I think that one of the seeds of that is something that we can see in the growth of empathy and solidarity. So I already mentioned the role of empathy in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think another uh, very no no noticeable development that I've seen recently and a lot of people have commented on is the rise of local solidarity in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. So we've seen the growth of mutual support groups, for example, in local communities. We've seen lots of people doing very altruistic things as a result of this crisis. So I think that oftentimes moments of crisis also represent moments for potential renewal and potential positive change. And so I would like to, to think in my more kind of optimistic or utopian moments that there is a space now for a more positive emotional regime to grow and to emerge um, alongside perhaps the continued existence of the negative emotions um, that a lot of us are experiencing uh, right now. So I think that negative emotions will always be around, but they don't have to necessarily be the dominant emotional regime and that we can see a potential for greater solidarity, greater hope, greater empathy in the future, building on more recent developments at what, what has been an extremely difficult time, I think, for pretty much everyone in the world. So, uh, so I feel um, hopeful <laughs> as a positive emotion um, about the potential for change in the emotional regime. But I also think that we cannot deny um, the continued importance of this kind of righteous anger as a fundamental political emotion that's going to remain around until the underlying injustices have been addressed. Karen, I, um, I hope you're right. It feels plausible and um, I'm, uh, uh, and I hope that um, these are this is this counts as what you think will happen, not just what you hope will happen. <laughs> um, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. It's been such a pleasure and so informative talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. That was the Palia podcast from Palia.com the Encyclopedia of Opinion.